When you talk about work ethic, I did a lot of drop sets. I would go very heavy. When I trained for shows, I'd have to have two training partners to keep up with me. This is the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pakulski. Today, I'm going to sit down with a legend of the bodybuilding game. Uh, one of the guys who literally was a pioneer in our sport all the way back to the late 1970s and all through the 80s. Rich Kasperi was a champion in the bodybuilding sport, you know, placed second in the Mr. Olympia numerous times behind the great Lee Haney. He won the first ever Arnold Classic, uh, I think it was 1988 and uh, literally is an icon in the sport. He's now gone on to create his own supplement company, which you may have heard of, uh, sponsored athletes like Flex Lewis, Hidetati Yamagishi, Iris Kyle, Catherine LaFrancois, some amazing athletes uh, over his tenure at the top of the sport. Now, Rich has got a really interesting story, right? He was one of the first guys to ever come to the sport. He became a champion very, very young, as early as 19. He won the Junior Nationals, 21. He got his pro card, 22. He was competing in the Mr. Olympia, ended up finishing third. Um, he tells me all about that stuff, how he trained, uh, what his mistakes were, what he would do differently now if he were competing. Um, some really interesting insights and ultimately how they ate back then. And, you know, some people say that the bodybuilders of the 70s, 80s, and 90s were better than the bodybuilders of today. So I asked Rich that specifically and said, hey, tell me what you think was the difference. You know, was it the nutrition? Was it the supplementation? Was it the training or was it the drugs or, or a combination of all of them? And Rich and I get into all of those interesting topics. Uh, Rich is an absolutely incredible gentleman who, you know, took his uh, Gasperi nutrition to a $100 million net or gross revenue in 2011 and uh, three years later as he'll tell you in the episode ended up claiming bankruptcy so he's been to the top uh, he's been to the bottom and now he's back to the top and thriving with his business Kasperi Nutrition and he told me he's going to be down here to train with me soon which I'm really looking forward to showing him around the muscle intelligence lab and kicking his butt a little bit showing him the intelligent way to train I hope you guys love this episode with Rich Gasperi. Head over and follow him on Instagram, social media. He would love to hear from you and get some feedback on this amazing conversation. Enjoy. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm sitting here in Columbus, Ohio, and I've got a guy sitting beside me who has inspired me from the time I began bodybuilding. One of the first bodybuilders I ever looked at in the magazine, and I don't want to make you feel old, man, but more <laughs> to express my gratitude for you. Um, you know, known for his work ethic, known for his conditioning. Now he's built one of the greatest brands in the fitness industry and in the world. Rich Kasperi, man. Thank Thanks you for being here, here, Ben. Thank you for having thank you for being here, man. Yeah. Um, making the time. I know you're extremely busy and uh, your brand is still flourishing after 20 years. And I wanted to start there because for the people that don't know Rich, um, Kasperi Nutrition's been around since... 1998. Wow. I started the brand out of my, uh, out of my mom's basement, actually. So, you know, when you talk about success stories, you know, people saw me as this top professional bodybuilder. But, you know, after I retired, I went through some hard times, uh, went personally bankrupt, uh, sold everything off, moved back to my parents' house and said, I got to figure something out to make money because I was making money as a professional bodybuilder. And, and back then in the in the 80s and 90s, I was able to do very well because I was a top bodybuilder. But sure. And you got paid I, for guest posings. And yeah, such, guest yeah. posing, seminars contracts with Weeder, and I got injured, and from that injury, wasn't able to compete no more, and I was in my early 30s, I had to figure out to do something, mm -hmm. and I, I just sat there. What was the injury? Actually, I herniated two discs in my neck. Training? I have a mil I, yeah, I was training, I was actually getting ready. The injury came on, and I could see uh, an atrophy in my, my right side, from my right tricep into my back, and I noticed, you know, as I was competing, even though I was working harder and harder, that my body wasn't getting into the condition that I should get in. Right. And if you have nerve damage, it's almost, it's literally impossible to really do anything, no matter how 
hard of a worth work ethic you have and yeah. how hard you diet or what you do, you're just going to have that problem. And you can see it in a lot of bodybuilders. You know, I saw it in Ronnie Coleman, you know, his last yep, years. For sure. It was unfortunate that I was very young that that happened. And when I was born with, I was born, unfortunately, with a military neck where one of my discs in my, it was a C4, C5, didn't exist. It was totally just fused. Huh. So the disc above it and the disc below it were under extreme pressure. So, you know, when people are into training, you know, they always say it's lower back. But a lot of the issues with bodybuilders are the neck and the okay. lower back. Sure. Both, both those areas are the weakest link in any bodybuilder. Your training is almost like mythical when it comes to these young aspiring bodybuilders who don't know Rich. Look them up on, on YouTube. and But, like, to me, it was mythical from a perspective of, like, there's so many stories out there of, like, how hard you trained and how nobody could keep up. And that was what really inspired me. And there's some really interesting stories I've heard about places you used to go and, like, lock yourself down to train. Tell me some of that stuff, man. I'd love to hear well, how you prepared. You, you, did say, you, know, you did say it right. You know, and I was just a crazy guy when it came to training, you know. When I trained, I trained, I, I, I moved to California. Let me just go backtrack, you know. I won the Junior Nationals um, at 19 years old. And from there, I got an offer to work at a Gold's Gym. Um, Definitely Mr. Uh, Connors? Yeah, Mr. Connors, who's probably seen you as well. <laughs> so he offered me a job at, at his, his one of his gyms yeah. and actually ownership of one of the gyms in the Valley. So I took the job, and I said, shoot, I got an opportunity, you know, in my teenage years and 20 years old. I'm going to move right. to California. So I took the job a year later at 20 years old. Uh, I won the junior nationals. I went into the nationals, came in fifth place my first try. Um, I went in as a heavyweight. When he saw me, you know, uh, Ed said, like, you need to go into the light heavyweights, and you'll probably clean up the class and turn pro. I got a job offer at this Gold's Gym in Reseda in the Valley, can work there and for me i saw Reseda on the map back i don't know if you guys your listeners now know about california Reseda was close to uh woodland hills woodland hills woodland hills was where oh, joe weeder was yeah and i wanted to be able to see joe weeder that was the guy that if i saw joe weeder he's going to make me a champion right or i was going to show that i'm going to be one of his top champions so i took the job moved out there i trained like an animal when i won the junior nationals um you know some of the weights i was lifting you know, my, my squat was like 785. Wow. I can bench, you know, uh, 525. So I worked out, and I would do high I was reps. 19? I was at 20 years old oh, doing wow. those kind of weights. Um, squatting, say, what is it? You're, you're a big squatter. Four, what is it, 485? Four, five plates right, 45. For, for 35 reps. Wow. Crazy shit like yeah. that that I would do. Because sure. I would start reading the magazines Tom with Platts. Tom Platts. Dude, I did the same thing. And I, and I read his articles on legs, and I said, <laughs> you know what? If he could do it, I could do it. And that's I was, what it takes. That's what I do. Yeah, and, yeah. and I know you, you're known for your legs. I was also known for my legs. It yep. was like one of my better body parts. So whatever Tom Platts did, I was going to do and do sure. it better. Yep. So, I would, so when I went to California and I went to Venice uh, Gold's Gym, I went out there as a 20-year-old kid working out, and I started doing legs. And I started, I, when I was training legs, I had one of the, you guys or listeners don't know who these, these guys are. They're called the Barbarian Brothers. Sure, yeah. They're two of these guys. They're one of the strongest guys in bodybuilding. So one of the guys came up to me. I, I don't know which one it was, but he goes, hey, can I work in you with legs? Right. I said, sure, work in with me. So I started doing set after set. He started seeing me do like, you know, 45, for like 35, 50 reps with 405. He could not keep up with me. Right. I got him to throw up. <laughs> so, like, so he walked. It's always the goal, So right? it was great to see, you know, one of the barbarian. He's like, who are you? Right. I said, I'm Rich Gaspari, the next Mr. Universe, the next pro. Right. Watch out for me. I was this cocky kid, you know, <laughs> moving to California. He's I said, from Jersey, man. Yeah, I said, I'm East Coast. Right. You guys in the West Coast are pussies. Yeah. And I'm going to take over. That's how I was as a kid. So yeah. I, hey, I moved out there. I got the job, and I started training in this, this, this gym that I managed. And who was there was Lee Haney. Now, Lee Haney was, he just came third in the Olympia. He was like a promising pro, you know, that he was going to win the Olympia. He saw me, he goes, he comes up to me, he goes, hey, boy. He goes, I'm going to make you an offer. You want to train with me? I'm getting ready for the Mr. Olympia, and I want to win this year, and you bust your ass. You know, that's how we talk. And I said, let's hit it on. Let's be training partners. And I, was, I looked at him. I said, holy crap, I get this pro. Did you know who he was at that time? I didn't know who he was because I was a fan of bodybuilding. Right. I remember I was just this fan that loved Tom Platts. And I, I moved to California and I was seeing all my heroes, 
you know, that I, that I moved there to. And he was one of the newcomers. And I said, shit, yeah, I want to train with you. I had more of a powerlifting um, training philosophy. Right. Through Lee Haney, he taught me how to, like, train the muscles more, you know, total, you know, you know, a contraction of the muscle, total, you know, right. extension of the muscle, sure. working the muscles properly. And when he did that, he, I totally, cha- you know, changed my physique. I was very bottom heavy, heavy. My waist was rather thick. I mean, I had a little bit of a wider waist, you know, because of my hip ratio. So I had to really change my physique. So what did I have to do? It was actually, I did something different. Like I had to push him on legs to build his legs up. I had to stop training legs because my legs were huge. You know, when I won the junior nationals and the nationals, I just needed bigger shoulders, right. more chest, bigger arms. So I focused on those body parts and did less on legs, but pushed Lee to train his legs hard. And that year, he won his first Olympia. I won the junior national. I'm sorry, the nationals and the Mr. Universe. Back in those days, wow. you had to win the nationals, and then you went to the Mr. Universe or the World Championships. You didn't turn pro winning the nationals. You had to go to the Universe, which everybody in the world competed in. So each, you know, Mr. Canada, Mr. Uh, Belgium, Mr. France, yeah. all went against each other. And that person who won that show was then the world champion. Mr. Universe, and you were pro. And did, you, did he get to do the Olympia? Guy who won the pro card, or, or he? He also could get to do the Olympia. Right. So, I got to do. The, I got to win the Mr. Universe, and after I won the show, Joe Weider gave me the award. And he goes, "Would you like to go in the Mr. Olympia?" I said, "Absolutely not. I'm not ready for the Mr. <laughs> You're 21 years old. Yeah, I said I am not going in the Mr. Olympia wow. because I want to be ready to yeah. be on that stage. Yeah. I'm not just going to go on that stage to be just background. Right. I want to go on that stage and win the show. Yeah. And. That, you were 21 years old. Yes, I wow. was 21 years old. So Lee Haney won his first Olympia. What a great year that was. Yeah, it was the best year. 84? It was 1984. Okay. It was just 21. I just turned 21. Um, I was a baby. You know, I think about it now. I said, shit, there's not many 21-year-olds that, that no. are doing that. You're on top of the world. Yeah, at that point, man, and I'm sure. I was on top of the world because from that point, um, I ended up, I was living in California. Lee, Lee Haney was living in California. He moved back to Atlanta, Georgia, and then I moved back to New Jersey. And right there, then we became rivals. Because then, you know, the first year I got to compete in the Mr. Olympia, I got third place on my first try at 22 years old. I, won, I, I should have won the Night of the Champions, which was the New York pro that's called today. Yeah, who won that one? I, uh, Albert Beckles, yeah. who then, he was the oldest, and I was the youngest competitor in wow. that show. But everybody booed when I lost that show. We talk about work ethic. I had a principle where I did a lot of drop sets, you know, I would go very heavy and then drop the weight, descending sets, up and down sets. I would do everything to stimulate a muscle. What everyone now would call for training. Yeah, what they call it. And I would do that type of training. And when I trained for shows, I'd have to have two training partners to keep up with me. Dude, I did the same <laughs> thing. I never had anybody else do that. I was the only guy. One for the first hour, one yeah, for yeah, the second yeah, so, hour. I did the same thing. So I had those two training partners because if I had one training partner, normally they would burn out after totally. about a month. They'd be gone. Right. So, you know, I, I had a lot of great guys that were really good bodybuilders that were like, I can't keep up with you. That's great. It's just too hard. That's great. And I just, I love to train that way. I would right. push myself to the limit. I remember doing legs and, you know, doing 100 reps on leg press and popping blood vessels in my eyes and saying, shit, look at that. I know I train hard. Just crazy shit. But I was in my 20s. You know, I didn't know any better. Right. And I just pushed myself to the limit because I felt I wasn't genetically endowed like Lee Haney. Sure. So I felt I had to push that muscle to another limit to get it to grow. Now, maybe I was wrong, but I, I was able to get myself to get second place three years in a row, win the first Arnold Classic, right. you know, became two years in a row Grand Prix champion with a guy that everyone said was limited in his genetics. So, I, you know, I felt that I did the right proved, thing, but proved him wrong. I think that all thinking about it now, I could have been able to pace myself differently. Sure. That I could have lasted longer because by 30, by 34, I was, <laughs> I was yeah, done. You don't need to last longer, man. You, you, you made your mark. Yeah. You did an amazing job. Talk to me about the, this, this concept that people have now in their mind about overtraining and how that didn't play into your... Um, like, do you feel as though the way you trained helped or hindered you? I think it helped me. I mean, overstating is a state of mind. Like, people who overtrain, if they overtrain, they start losing muscle. They start not being able to sleep. I mean, there's signs of overtraining. Sure. If you're feeling great, you know, with your diet and right. your training, you're seeing strength increases, 
you're seeing changes in your body, you know, for the better, then you're not overtraining. Right. But, I mean, people that do go into an overtrained state, they don't recognize that. And I was able to also recognize when I was taking in maybe too low a carbohydrate or maybe I was overtraining and I would set back a little bit on my training. But I did have to push myself much harder than a lot of people. And it was just how I was. If I didn't train that hard, I just didn't feel like I was training. That's what I said. Like when I was competing, I used to say, <laughs> I, if I train the way these guys, they look like a swimmer. And that's no joke. No. <laughs> hey, what's up, everybody? I interrupt this episode with Rich Kasperi to bring you a special message from the MI40 Nation. I want each and every one of you to head to mi40nation.com and sign up and join me in the best muscle building community on the planet. I give you all the best information that I've accumulated over the last 20 years my new program, which is the best information I've ever put out, is called Hypertrophy Mastery. It's a month-by-month -month program teaching you each body part and how to master it, not the way I train, but how you should train for your body. And that's the uniqueness of it, is I don't advocate training any particular way other than the exact way that fits your body. So I don't teach you, hey, this is how to do a bench press. What I do is I teach you principles. I teach you like, hey, this is how to set up for you. This is how to over, overcome the bottlenecks for you. So I wanna teach you a thought process to empower you to build your greatest body. It's not just about, hey man, here's a program and go do it and oh, unfortunately you couldn't build that body part. No, I don't believe weak body parts exist. I think they're a thing of the past and a paradigm that is just restricted by your ability to actually put tension through it. So I'm going to teach you the best setup, the best exercises for your body to maximize muscle building at hypertrophymastery.com. Um, or you can head over to mi40nation.com where you can get hypertrophy mastery or any one of the other 30 plus programs that I've built over the last seven years of leading the muscle building industry on the internet. I hope you guys join me and look forward to hearing from every one of you. And enjoy the rest of the episode with Rich Gasperi. Talk about your nutrition back then, man. Because, like, there, there's a lot of speculation of how guys in the 70s and 80s uh, ate. And I don't know if anybody's ever really talked about it. I've never really heard anybody say, like, hey, this is what my nutrition is. Well, you know, like. back and, in the 70s and even to the early 80s, most bodybuilders followed, like, a diet. They were basically low carbohydrate right before a show. So they take out their carbs, go on a high protein diet. No you fat. Know, no fats. Or actually, it would be fats and proteins. But well, like what sources? Give me an example. Well, people would eat like, you know, just straight eggs, full eggs, beef, chicken, but almost like only 50 grams of carbs. So it was almost like carbs keto. It was almost like it, sure. carbs would be basically roughage, like greens. Yeah. Now, that did not work for me. When I followed that diet, I, I would shrink, feel weak. So I started saying like, I need to eat you know, carbohydrates. There's actually a trainer, he's, he's, he's a guru trainer that actually, uh, Chris Aceto followed him, was, was a, guy, a guy named Bob Gruskin. Don't know. Bob Gruskin was a trainer back in the 70s, 80s, and guys like Chris Aceto followed all his principles that he's using today in a lot of his pros. Really? So he was always telling me, I, you know, he came to me as a guy that followed like young aspiring bodybuilders and teenagers and Basically, you say, like, Rich, you got to take your carbs. You got to take complex carbs. They're the fuel for your body, you know, but you got to take the right type of carbs. You got to stay away from simple sugars. You got to stay away from, you know, uh, you know refined sugars, um, you know, baked potatoes, brown rice, sweet potatoes, oatmeal. So I started, you know, implementing them into my diet and following more of a 40 40 20 diet. And that worked really well for me. As soon as I started implementing actually slightly higher, maybe 45%, 50% carbs, 35% um, protein, and the rest fats, I saw my body just start to gain size, start to feel stronger. So I, I, didn't, I never went on a low-carbohydrate diet from then on as a pro. I was known to be one of the most ripped bodybuilders, and I've always put in you know, carbs into right. my diet. Do you think science, the way it is now, helps guys or cripples guys? Because you know, that much information sometimes people, and it sounds like, you know, I did it, is overthink a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I need a lot of sugar. I need this. I, I'm overtraining. And then you know, obviously science has its benefits. I'd just like to hear your opinion on you know, comparing against what you did compared to the guys now, do you think this evolution in science has been helpful or crippling? I mean, I think science is, is, is very helpful. I mean, it's how you use it. I mean, I sat there and put everything on a journal. So I was one of the first guys to do that. No one really kept journals back in the day. So I would keep my notebook and journals. And actually, Dorian Yates, I attributed my success because Rich Gasparri, you know, wrote in an article about using a really? journal. 
So my journal would be my carbs, my fats, my proteins, how I felt, my energy levels, what I weighed, you know, everything that I felt that day, I would put down on paper. Yeah. You still have those? I, yeah, they actually are put away. I have those notebooks. And those notebooks actually helped me because day to day, I would look at those and make changes. And, and those changes would be either, you know, I felt really tired. Why am I feeling tired? Well, my carbs are a little lower. Let me increase my complex carbohydrates. You know, let me see what happens if I put in some fruits and I put it in and see how I would look and see, I would always see a two to three day change in my body. Something I discovered that I did this way back and now people do it today and it's big as a gluten-free diet. I was following gluten-free diets back in the 80s when really? no one even knew what gluten-free was. Right. But what I saw is that people that had gluten allergies would actually have water retention. And I feel everyone has gluten allergies. At some level. So yeah. if you, at some level. So if you're at this extreme level of trying to make your skin so thin, and if you cut out gluten, because I would experiment. If I eat bread and I eat a sweet potato, why do I not get ripped eating bread, but I do on a sweet potato? It's the gluten. So I cut out that gluten, and then I, I noticed significant differences before a show. I was able to get myself to another level of extreme ripness. I mean, I was known for being the first guy with, with striated glutes, and I was following a, a gluten-free diet. And, you know, people are like, how did you know about that? I said, I just read about it. I was very much into, like, reading the science on nutrition and what to do. So if you're saying science, you know, you can overthink it, but, it, but any scientist, they would experiment on trial and error. Sure. So if you're putting it down on paper and you're going to see every three days of what it's going to do to your body, then it makes sense. But if you're just going to try to throw darts against the wall, it's not going to work. Everything has to be planned in what you do. Tell me about some of the things you did that looking back on it, we think was a little bit silly, a little bit crazy. Like, I'm sure we all experiment with things. And you're like, God, oh, that was dumb. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> what have I done really dumb? I've probably <laughs> done a lot of stupid, <laughs> dumb things. Um, you know, I experimented on different training principles, you know, doing uh, training a body part every day to see if I can get that body part. You know, uh, there was something where if you train a, overtrain a body part every day and then you cut back on it, the body part will grow. Sure. Yep. I mean, that actually is, there's some significance to it, sure. but I would do that maybe to do an extreme, right. you know. Um, I've torn muscles that I feel that I've, I could have avoided, you know, when I was very, very lean, I, I had a pec tear. And why that happened is because I just got myself to that point where I was so lean, I should have lightened up my weights, focused on more, you know, contraction and squeezing. And I still went to that heavy, heavy weight because I was afraid it was going to shrink, which was stupid of me doing that. Right. And boom, I tore a pec. So those kind of things like that, you know, thinking that you need to use extreme heavy weights when your body is down to a very low body fat is not a good move. I mean, you should keep yourself lifting um, to a point where, you know, you're, you're using heavy resistance to train that body to failure. But I don't think it's necessary to have these extreme weights. Right. you see with some of these pros. That's what I'm looking for because there's so many kids out there now making a lot of mistakes. And I mm -hmm. think the thing that we, th you know, maybe one of the biggest things we can learn from our, our the people that come before us is all these lessons of what not to do. And, yeah. you know, I, I try to try to always, you know, what can I tell these guys that I did wrong and be as tra transparent as I can. Like, don't do that. That didn't work. You know, there's a lot of things that um, can save them time. Well, exercises like behind the neck uh, presses, <laughs> really bad exercise. And right. I love behind the neck presses right. when I was a kid. But if you do those, you know you're going to destroy your shoulders. Behind the neck pull down, same thing. Um, all these type of exercises that are not natural motions for your body to move. You know, I learned a lot, you know, you know, reading about biomechanics and kinesiology. You have to just let the body go with the plane of motion. Right. Don't go against it and try to figure these ways of trying to go, you know, to a point that you're going to, injure yourself, especially when you're using heavy weights. So I think that's a big, uh, big problem that a lot of people do, you know, overtraining where you, where you are, where you do feel the signs that your body's starting to, you know, plateau or you start feeling sick or you start, you know, feeling tired, burnt out. We, you have, you have something you call where you feel this burnt out when you just don't feel like training. It's not laziness either because right. you can have that too. You don't feel like going <laughs> totally. to the gym when you're totally. dieting. And, and you got to feel your body just to know, like, you know what? I'm going to back off. And when I, when I turned pro, I had the ability to know, like, you know, today I'm not training. I feel like today's a bad day to train. And I just wouldn't train. And just, like, sometimes fill up, you know, take in um, a junk day. A lot of people are afraid. You know, as an example, I'm, I'm at the show here. I sponsor the Arnold Amateur. And 
I have this egg protein that I'm selling. It's a new product. And they're like, oh, I'd like to try that, but I'm on a diet. I said, do you really think that a sip is going to mess you up right, for your show? You know, and then one of the trainers was there. And I said, are you telling this person that if they take a sip of this, they're going to lose the show? Oh, no, no, no. That's what I'm saying. But that's how extreme people get right. to not even like take a sip of something because they feel they're going to lose. You know, I had a conversation with, with Josh Leonard about that about three weeks ago. And he's just, the reason he says it, he doesn't do it and it makes sense is it's a gateway, right? Because once you, once you get a little, you get a little taste of something, you're like, oh, but it tasted really good. <laughs> Let me have some like, more. All right. That's true. Know, that's yeah. true. When it comes to say junk food or something. Right. And I was able to take junk food, put it in my mouth, Get the flavor, it spit it out. <laughs> I've done stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I but, I mean, that's, that's discipline. You have to have the discipline. But if you're going to say that, you know, drinking a, a, a sugar-free egg white protein. 30 calories or that's, That you're sipping that's going to be about sure. 15 calories is going to affect your body. Right. That's ridiculous. Right. Well, so what was the best um, frequency you used for training body parts? Like, did you enjoy, you know, body parts once a week, twice a week, every five days? When, you, when you're at your peak... Um, how often did you train body parts? Well, I followed the, the double split. Uh, I trained my body parts twice a week, trained my body six days a week. So I would double split my body parts, train, you know, three days my entire body, and then repeat it again in three mm -hmm. days. So, so that's, I, that's I all. the best results like that too, man. <laughs> I, I think and, and today important. they think that's overtraining. So... Again, it, it's all who's doing it. What's your recovery like? What does it What does it look like outside of the gym, right? I think if if training twice a week is a problem for you, that's the least of your worries, right? It's there's other things happening that are much bigger problems. Yeah. So I I, I mean it's like I said, it's all philosophy. I see people now, a lot of top pros, like I said, they train once a week, their body parts once a week. They train their body four to five days a week. Um, but you know what I see in today's bodybuilders, they don't get as crisp. They don't get as dense. I mean, there are some dense, crisp bodybuilders, but the majority are not. Let's talk about that because I actually talked to John Meadows about that recently as well. And guys have been around a while. I've got my perspective on why that is. And I think it's multifaceted. I don't think it's just one thing. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to hear your opinion as to why you think bodybuilders now just don't get as conditioned. And, and you can talk literally about anything. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, these guys want to get a much – they want to get much bigger. And I noticed – I was at this, this phase when I was in bodybuilding, you know, call it the end of the golden era, into the late, you know, 80s, into the 90s. Then afterward came Dorian Yates. Um, we could not get to a certain size because I got myself, when I started getting bigger, I noticed that my waist started getting thicker. Even though I was shredded or ripped, I had to keep my body weight at the max 220. If I went above that, I started seeing thicker obliques. So I was, I was... Actually, I was penalized. If I started getting bigger, the judges would say, you're getting too big. Even though you look hard, you're starting to look blocky. So I would you know, basically stop and, and shrink myself and streamline myself down. When you can get that streamline, your body can get denser and harder, mm -hmm. I believe. I mean, I believe a lot has to do with the drugs that bodybuilders are taking. Um, you know, it's much different. I mean, to me, I don't even know half of what the guys know today what they right. what they take and they're it's just a different it's a different era of gaining that much size i think the less frequency in training also changes how your physique looks and getting denser um there are bodybuilders who are just naturally dense i was a naturally dense bodybuilder you know i had uh, one of our one of our athletes was like branch warren he's just a naturally dense bodybuilder that's his genetics right so yeah um, how different was the drugs back then? You know, I've talked too extensively about that, but was it, do you think we're using more now or more then? I think, I think we were the guys that kind of experimented to taught the guys how to take certain drugs. Like drugs like GH were very new. So no one really knew how to take GH. And back then, the GH that was available was made from Reese's, Reese's Monkey. You know, they weren't even like, it was like very, very, uh, yeah, fringe. Fringe, yeah. So I, I think that, the, you know, I think we used a lot less when it came to the amount of steroids that, that they take today. And I think it was kind of like it, we taught the, the, the next era on what to do, like insulin. Insulin was – I never used insulin. I never competed. But I've seen athletes when I was competing use insulin and guys like collapsing, not, you know, using too much, not knowing how to use it with carbs and – I think that's something also that we kind of did the experimenting that taught 
the next generation and how to use it properly. Right. So, and then once they used it properly, they were able to gain size and get bigger and do all the things that they're able to do today. But it, like anything, you know, if you look at any sport, um, it always like, or in how they're training and, and how they train today are two different ways of training. Just from what they did in the past, they learned from that and not what, to, what not to do right. or how to train, you know, better. Who's your biggest inspiration? Well, my biggest inspiration was always Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, I, you know, when I was a kid. Um, he was probably just still relevant when you were a kid. Um, just yeah, he kid. just retired. Yep. Well, that was his last show was 1975. But right. Then he came back in 80. But right. I just read about him, you know, as a kid. I was 12 years old. Right. The first time I got to – it was kind of funny. My, my friend, his father collected old muscle builder, Joe Weider muscle builder magazines and – one day, just out of blue, I was in his basement, and he had his weights, and he had stacks and stacks of magazines. And I went in there, and I said, what the hell is this? I started looking at these guys, Robbie Robinson, Frank Zane, Franco Colombo, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Lou Ferrigno. And I'm like, oh, my God, these guys are like superheroes. Look at these guys with muscle. I wanna... So I'd go to this kid's house just to read these magazines. Even though he wanted to go play ball, I was like, oh, let me stay in your basement and read these magazines. And, and I would always look at... Back then, it was Arnold Schwarzenegger that was getting the most coverage, um, and I was just amazed by, you know, he was very charismatic. You can see that, um, you know, as a kid, I saw Conan, you know, that was a big movie to see, and I got his first, I got his book, I guess it was, um, it was Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding. Right. Was that his first one, or the one... One of the books the where he's, he's on a mountaintop and he's doing a one-armed yeah. bicep. Yeah, that's the thing, so, Encyclopedia. So anyways, I, I got to go to the mall, and I didn't even have any money back then. I was like 13 years old. I went to the mall, and he this long line for Arnold. And uh, I went to go there, and I had just had a little piece of paper. And I put it there, and I said, someday, Arnold, I'm going to be like you. And he looked at me. He goes, you have to train hard, eat right, and believe in yourself. <laughs> and he signed the paper. <laughs> he sent me away. And, you know, it's funny because years later, you know, I won the Arnold Classic. Um, and then 25 years later, I got the uh, – his uh, what is it called the um the award <laughs> yeah the, the I'm lifetime, sorry lifetime the lifetime achievement award yeah. I'm losing my head I got the lifetime achievement award and I yeah. gave that speech to say you know as that aspiring 13 year old kid Arnold was how cool would it have been to have that still have that paper I know right? I know I lost it yeah. <laughs> I lost this he doesn't give autographs that much either you know right. so I it was it was just cool that you know I remembered him when I moved to California when I told you I was there at 20 years old. I got to go to World – he was in World Gym then. There was a World Gym, and he was there all the time. And, and he came up to me. He said, hey, kid, what are you doing? What are you competing in? So, you know, even though he's that time he was a big actor. So, you know, he inspired me a lot because it's just like – so like, wow, you can really do something with bodybuilding. You know, but I did know that, you know, I also needed to be more entrepreneurial, you know, because I did see bodybuilders – you know, it was funny. I was, I was a teenager, and I watched this bodybuilder um, – and I don't want to mention his name, but I was in a gym, and he actually beat Franco Colombo. So I was this teenager, and I saw this guy. He was driving this beat-up old car. You know, he was, a, he was basically a janitor. And I looked at him, and I said, I definitely don't want to be like him, even though he looks great. Right. <laughs> I don't want to be like him. So what am I going to do to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger? You know, I didn't know if I was going to be an actor, but, you know, I was always entrepreneurial and figuring out ways to, you know, to make money through bodybuilding right tell me about uh, as your bodybuilding career came to an end due to injury how you transitioned out and talk like the struggles because i think that's really where i'm living now yeah i'd love to hear your uh, maybe your first couple years and and what your first moves were and what your thought process was well I, I told a little bit earlier about you know i i got an injury i was unable to compete anymore i lost my contract with weeder he just pulled it because he, he just well he just said like you're injured, I can't really do anything with you, so I'm going to pull the contract and I had no money coming in, so I you know I was going through a tough divorce, so I lost my house and I went into personal bankruptcy. At that time, my parents you know my dad had cancer, my mom was sick with Parkinson's, so wow. you, you know so I go you know what I'm going to move back home and help them out and see what I can do to build build something, you know so. I had a gym, I was doing personal training, and when I was doing the personal training, I was, I was giving people supplements, you know, 
my all my clients and said, "Hey, take this, take protein, take aminos, take." Because I believed in supplements. Because as a as a pro bodybuilder, I believed in supplements as well, like amino acids and proteins and. So the big horse pill amino acids. The big. I used to use desiccated liver, <laughs> the amino acid pills. Right. Branch chains were very were still then, but I used believed in those. Yeah. So, anyways, I started starting giving my clients supplements. Well, I noticed that my supplement sales were much bigger than you know my my training or the efforts of selling supplements were. I was growing much more financially than sitting there trying right. to train all these people. So I was like saying, I said, well, huh. If I just give this guy this, I make a, a quick $100. But then to make $100 with him, I have to do like, you know, as I was charging like $50. I have to do two sessions with him to get that $100. See if I could sell him more products. That's a lot of money for the 80s, man. <laughs> yeah, I was doing. Uh, well, I was maybe doing 90s? Yeah, it was, a, it was mid-90s into, right. yeah. So I was doing okay as a personal, you know, as a right. trainer. But um, I tried to train, you know, I tried to pay. For me to, to train with me, you had to pay a little more because sure. I was a pro bodybuilder. But, um. I noticed that I could make more money selling, you know, supplements, and I started making tens of thousands of dollars with my clients. So I was like, I think I got something here. I should do my own brand. So, you know, I said, I want to do my own brand. And, of course, the naysayers, you're never going to make a brand. Of course. You can't do That's it. That's what fuels the fire. Yeah, you can't do it. So yeah. I actually started investigating, going to different manufacturers in New Jersey. Actually, I see you have one of the products, Universal, used to do private labeling. So I went to those guys, and I said, hey, I want to do my own brand. And they started giving me this and that. And I took some of the money I had left and I started making products, putting my label on it. And I started selling to my clients. And then for my clients, I started going out to like the tri-state area. I lived in New Jersey, so I went to the local gyms that I used to go to. I was the, I was the hero then. I said, well, if I go to these gyms, they'll, they'll buy my product. Sure. It wasn't necessarily true because a lot of these gyms that – when I was a pro bodybuilder, they were open the doors. When I tried to sell them something, they didn't want to buy something from me. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. I, I, I really learned quickly that, you know, to sell something is much harder. Yeah. Even though, you know, I can get the door open because of who I was, but I had to sell them. And I had to have a relationship to build sales. Sales is, a, is not an easy thing. You have sure. to have relationship driven. So at the beginning, it was very hard because I was going to every gym local store to try to sell my product. And little by little, I started getting, you know, customers and growing the Gasparri brand. I was at a local show. I would go to some of the local shows, have a booth, a 10 by 10 booth, and people would go like, wow, look at Rich Gasparri. You know, he was a top pro. Now he's got this little booth trying to push these <laughs> supplements. So I just sat there and, you know, was, you know, doing what I can do and push these products in. I was at a show, and I was actually would judge some of the shows, and I was there with a guy named Eric Hillman, who at that time owned Europa. So I go, I, I, I knew he had a distribution company. I said, hey, you know, Eric, what does it take for me to get my brand with you? He goes, oh, you're not going to be able to do this because, first of all, if you're going to buy the product, we're going to buy the product from you. We want them on terms, meaning we're not going to pay you up front. You know, we're going to pay you in 30 to 45 days. So are you able to do that? So I said, well, how big of a how big of a product are you gonna how much are you gonna buy of the products? Um, he goes, well, it depends. You know, I don't know. He goes, right now we don't see a demand for your brand. So he was in Charlotte. So what I did is I started calling all the local stores in Charlotte and started selling my products to all the local stores near his distribution. So then all of a sudden, you know, the next time I saw him at a show, he goes you know, all of a sudden there's like a demand for your brand, <laughs> you know, like we're seeing it in the stores in Charlotte yeah. while you're in New Jersey. So he goes, okay, I'm going to give you a shot. We're going to buy some. So his first PO with me was like $20,000. And to me, 20000 was like $20 million. So I went to my brother and I said, can I have a loan to, you know, I have this customer buying. Can I borrow 20000 My brother's like, $20,000? I go, well, I got a PO. I said, here it is, and I pay you back in 30 days. So my brother, you know, gave me the money. And I was able to start the PO with them. And then from there, once I got paid, I gave my brother back his money, took the profit. Back then, I had products. Today, it's much harder. The profit margin was much higher. Sure. So I was able to take that and just, just keep building and building and building and building until the company you know, grew into a global you know, force and to you know, shoot 100 countries around the world. And we were in every channel, and the, the brand just became just big. What was your biggest yearly revenue? We did close to 100 million um, 
back in 2011. Um, probably one of the biggest years that we had with, with, with the products. But the big problem is we started seeing changes in the industry. The margins started shrinking. So I became almost too big and the profit margins started to shrink and shrink and shrink. What was the uh, turning point where it started to come down? Well, <laughs> what happened is there, besides that happening to the company, I went through uh, a divorce. And personally, the divorce really affected me because it didn't keep me my eye on the ball. Uh, another thing happened to me, I went through several lawsuits between employees, between outside forces. You know, Gaspari had issues that affected the company where it was death by a thousand cuts. I had so many outside things happening. And, you know, a lot of times when people see you're down, they come after you even more. And that's kind of what happened to totally. the company. And, and when we got to this point that it just, uh, it, it actually just put me to the point that I went into business bankruptcy with the company. And then from that point, I had to get, I had to buy back shares to get into my company with someone else owning it with only owning 30%. And then having someone else buy out the company and then owning 49% and now coming back and then buying back the company that took till now to 2018 to be able to do this. So Gasparri's had its ups and downs. So had you sold, like when you went to, into business bankruptcy? You don't sell your company. What you happens just, you just shut it down. You no. Know, what happens is, is that you, you owe money to people. You go into bankruptcy because you owe money to your debtors. Sure. What happens is, is that federal government then basically puts your, your company into auction. You have no rights to it to basically take whatever money that company can make to pay your debtors. Now, what I had to do is then take money, millions of dollars, and the new owner and say, here's money to buy into my own company to get back a piece of the company. But what happens is I became a minority owner of my own company. That changed where... They didn't understand the business, and from that point, the business never grew like it was because once that entrepreneur loses that, you know, that fire and spirit to be able to do changes very quickly, it becomes much harder to, you know, grow the company. How is that to you mentally to go from, you know, $100 million a year in a short amount of time, I don't know what the time frame was, to bankruptcy? What, when did you go bankrupt? It was 2015. Wow. Four years. Yeah. How was that mentally, man? Very, very hard. Um, very, very hard because at the time I went into business bankruptcy, the company was still doing $65 million, you know, in gross sales, but the margins shrank down. Um, we owed a lot of money to the banks, um, owed a lot of money to vendors, and there was nothing else that I can do but file for, you know, for reorg. It's called reorganization. You, there's different bankruptcies where you just totally go out of business or you go into what's called reorganization. Reorganization is, is being able to take whatever assets you have, pay your debt a certain percent that can, you know, clean it up and then you start over again. That's basically how it is in the United States. So that's kind of what, what I had to do to get the company to come back. No matter what, this brand still has longevity. The brand has been around for, like I said, over 20 years. And even though all this happened, we're still a $20 million a year brand from that point, from that point to this point, and now profitable. But it took a long time of transition and keeping my mind focused to keep this going. When you talk about, you know, ups and downs, I've been through low downs. And I've been through very high ups. And, and I always, the one thing I always do is always believe in myself to continue on and grow. As long as you have that, I believe that, you know, this company is still, like I said, like you said, it's longevity. This brand is an iconic brand. There's brands that still don't do what we do that are big names. And we're still there, you know, growing as a brand. What's the 10 and 20 year vision for Gasparri Nutrition? Well, Gasparri has changed a lot. I mean, the marketing, we talked earlier about how marketing has become more towards social media. The brand itself is a little bit of an older demographic. People between their late 20s into their 40s sure. really know the brand. If you talk to a kid that's between 20, 21, 19, 20, well, 21. My demographic knows the brand. Right? Yeah, I'm 37. You're, you're 37. So yeah. a guy, I see 
anywhere between the young age of like 30 and you like your age is like definitely know the brand because 10 years ago you were in your 20s sure 15 years ago you were you know your you know your late teens or tw- you you knew the brand right if you're in your 20s today that kid's 10 years old he's not going to remember the brand totally yeah. so you know i got it one of my guys here that's my national sales director he goes rich I'm, I'm, there's a 21-year-old kid, and he's like, I never heard of this brand. You know, so we want to get back that demographic. How do we get back that demographic? The new, the new way of marketing is through social media, through target marketing, um, all these different tools that are today used is what Gasparri needs to do. You know, changing, you know, the genre of using younger athletes to represent. I mean, I'm still out there training my ass off, but, you know, someone, some young kid who goes, ah, that, that guy looks good. That old guy looks good. Sure. You know, for his age. But sure. You know, they want to know yeah, what man. that young kid's doing with the high, you know, social media following. I totally get it. You know, and, and that's some of the changes that we're making in the brand. I love what I'm doing. It's like, here's a brand that has, it has, it has stands on the test of time. There's a lot of, biz, you know, you, have you heard of EAS? Of course. They're gone. Yeah. You know, they're out of business. I'm still here. You know, there's a lot of brands that have been around and they're gone. There's a lot of new brands that you'll see come and go, you know, but we're still here for over 20 years and we will still be here for the next 10 years. Um, am I going to be here with the brand? Maybe not. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to grow the brand as, as great as I can sure. and just, you know, and grow it. But one thing I do is I want to keep that legacy name. When I started this brand, I started out of my basement. My dad was dying of cancer and he watched me on this pool table filling orders <laughs> yeah and i was there yeah. filling orders and he goes and i go and I, I said dad you see your name on this bottle gasparri i go this is going to be all over the world and you know my dad said something to me and you know he goes you know what he goes you really followed your dream like he was totally against a lot of things that i did moving to california to be a pro bodybuilder you know he wanted me to finish school i never finished college i I basically, you know, and, and this is not a good idea for any of you listeners to not finish college, <laughs> yeah. but it worked for me where, you know, I decided to follow my dream to be this pro bodybuilder, became one of the top pro bodybuilders, started my own company, believed in the vision of starting this company. And, you know, he just said to me, he goes, I'm really proud of you. And, you know, and when he passed on, I said, you know what, he's always looking down on me to say, don't give up, Rich. You know, I come from, uh, I come from an Italian, you know, from Italian background. My dad was an immigrant. He came to this country with like five dollars in his pocket and he always said like you know he had to build what he got here he goes you already got a head start you know you got food on the table you got a house a roof over your head there's no reason why you can't be super successful right so i always thought of that i said you know what you know that that people have lost that you know that idea of that you know u.s is the land of opportunity and i still believe that i mean you're coming from canada you're living in the u.s i guess you believe this is a place you know, for you to be to to make moves. Absolutely, man. I think everyone around the world wants to. But a lot of Americans don't, and that's a You're shame. Right. And, you know, you see a lot of young Americans that don't believe in that, you know, land of opportunity. Sure. you got to bust your ass, work hard. People want handouts now. It's not about handouts. It's about if you want to get something in this, this world, in this country, you got to work for it. Don't expect the government to give you, and I'm not trying to make this political, right. but you definitely need to work for what you get, right. you know, so, and that's what I believe in, and it's like everything I've got is all because of my hard work and efforts, and, and that's what I continue to believe in. I believe your brand is going to continue to be successful just because you have so many trials and tribulations and lessons built under your belt, you know, like all you need is significance, right? It's just like, okay, well, who is significant? How do we create significance for people who are buying the product? You know, a little demographic analysis, you know what you're doing, man. Mm-hmm. And um, what I want to talk to you about that I think is, you know, the, the last thing that we'll touch on is, you know, you, you built this brand and we, we kind of started touching on it, but there's, there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people out there who are interested in building a brand, interested in building uh, their personal brand, they're interested in building a, a brand that has legacy like Kasperi. I'd love to talk about some of the lessons you've uh, acquired over the last 20 years of building this brand up to $100 million. And what are some of the golden nugget takeaways that our listeners could benefit from hearing from you? Well, first off, you know, plan. On anything you do, you have to, you have to, you have to make a plan. You have to set something up you know, a strategy and what you're going to do in a business. You can't just flounder in whatever you're going to do. Look at what you're trying to do. Like, you know, at that time, I was trying to make the best products. You know, as a, as a bodybuilder, I wanted to make the best products that I believed in. I believed in supplements, 
and I had a passion for it. That's why I represented my products to say, you know what? I use this because I believe in it. You can't sit there and sell something you don't believe in. You have to believe in what you're doing. You have to have a passion in anything that you do. If you have a passion, people will see that and it'll resonate and it will help you sell. I mean, if I can, I can be in front of anybody that I'm going to sell, and I, and I don't want to call it sell, that I'm going to talk about my products. Sure. And when I do that, they're going to buy from me because they believe in what I'm saying. I'm not being, I'm not being a bullshit artist. If you're in it just to make money, don't do it. Whatever you do, do something that you believe because you're passionate what you believe in. Like what you're doing, you believe in what you're doing. You believe in your training principles. You believe in you know, the philosophies that you have, and you'll be successful. But if you're going to do this and say, you know what, I'm going to get into this because I'm going to make X amount of money. It's not going to work that way. You have to have a passion. And if you have that passion, passion will grow into dollars and money. But a lot of people lose that focus. They're just saying, how do I make money? And that's where they lose it. Did you know or believe that you were going to have a $100 million brand? Did I know that? I, I didn't. I knew I was going to do something. I believed in my passion. I believed that if I worked hard, that I was able to can accomplish whatever I wanted to. I believed. I always sat there. I remember being in this dusty basement. You know, By the way, I told you I started my business in my mom's basement. The house burnt down. I lost everything. I had like 50000 in product. I wow. lost everything. I had to go into my brother's basement, which was like an unfinished, like dingy basement. I sat there with a desk and a computer and a phone, and that's all I had. And I would package out in the cold snow packaging. Wow. So I, you know, I definitely just believed in what I was doing you know, and sat there and just said, I'm going to be able to do this. I'm going to be able to grow this business. Belief in yourself is... You got to believe you got to believe in yourself but you also have to have a plan. You can't just believe in yourself without having something set to what you're going to do. And that plan can change. A business plan or whatever type of plan that you're going to put together and saying this is what we're going to do for the next 3 months, 6 months, 1 year. If you don't do that, it's going to be very hard. And that plan can change. It can plan, it, it, you could see in 6 months and say, "You know what? I was going to do this, but actually I got to slightly tweak it to do that." Because you start once you get yourself involved in, in what you're doing, you start seeing, you know, the changes that need to be made. Relationships are key. The one thing that I did to grow this brand is I traveled the world. As a pro bodybuilder, I was one of the most extensive travelers, guest posing, seminars. I did it all over. I did the same thing with the brand. I was able to talk to the people and travel to these places. I'm one of the first guys. I mean, now you see Ronnie Coleman doing and a lot of these other bodybuilders. I would go and do these tours Store to store to store to store to store. That builds sales. You had a reputation for being the, the work machine. Like you, you have to do even, it. Even the athletes, like you can't sign with Rich Man. He's gonna make you do like it. exactly. <laughs> and you know what? I would tell the athletes. I said, listen, we're gonna go on a one month tour. We're gonna travel through England. I'm gonna tell you one thing. I'm gonna make sure you're gonna eat. I'm gonna make sure you're gonna train. But you're gonna visit stores every day with me. Do you want right. to do it or not? And as I, <laughs> honestly, as mo most athletes don't want to do that. No. For me, I would have been like, Look, Rich, I'll, I'll one-up you, man. I'll do twice as many as you, right? Well, like, that's be, – Because I, I get it. Yeah. Right? But most athletes are like, what? I have to, like, actually do work? <laughs> you're going to go and visit stores every day? <laughs> what? Sign autographs? Yeah. But I said, I promise you, you're going to be able – You know, guys like Flex Lewis understood it. Hidi Yamagishi, you still done like, – And they're huge, right? That's why they've got huge brands. Yes. And they were able yeah. to grow themselves – I mean, Flex grew himself, you know, I give him kudos to what he was able to do. He's yeah. now he's a legend being able to, you know, I got him when I, he, no one even knew who he was. He just won the UK championships the yeah, and he was this Welsh guy that yep. no one could even understand. Right. And I, I saw him as a great, a, a great bodybuilder. I said, this kid can be really great and started working with him and the kid grew. But like he would say, I go, okay, Flex. We're going to go here this month. We're going to go there this month. We're going to go. But I said, I promise you, you're going to eat your six meals. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to get to trade every day because right. that's what's most important. And, and they think, <laughs> right. And I think it's going to take away from training. But if you put it in perspective, like I know, I know guys who are pro bodybuilders or were pro bodybuilders working in a factory at Walmart. Like, yeah, no exaggeration. Right. There's a guy that I know who was competing in, in like the Tampa pro working for 12 to 14 hours a day in a well, factory at go. Walmart. Like compare that against. Yeah. Hey man, I gotta go like flex my muscles in a tank top at like, GNC <laughs> or something. Like, dude, you got it pretty good. Yeah, that's, that's what I said. Right? That's what I said, and and that's and that's what I did. Like I said, you know, passion, believing in yourself, getting out to the public, 
you know, relationships, all these things will grow a business. You know, if you don't have relationships, you have nothing. I, I, can, I can ask for favors. I, you know, I got over 20 years in the industry. I could still go to customers and say, hey, can you do this for me? And they'll do it for me as long as it's reasonable. And that's why we're still here. That's why Gasparri can still grow. Now, you're 55 years old. What is Rich Gasparri doing in 25 years? Wow, 25 years. I know. I'm doing it 25 years. I make everybody. I think I'll be, I should be retired on an island, you know, enjoying myself. You know, like I do want to grow this brand and I want to pass it on. You know, uh, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to pass it on to my daughter. She's 11. Um, but, you know, I do want to eventually retire and enjoy, you know, life. Um, I don't think I'm ever going to do nothing. Because I think once you do nothing is when you, you know, when people say you die, you just always have to keep your mind busy, your body busy. So, you know, I, I definitely I think you enjoy. and I should create like the old guy retired, like, I don't want to do juice anymore division. <laughs> <laughs> I want to look awesome and feel awesome, but I don't want to do juice anymore. Division. Yeah, yeah. I think we'd all compete in it, man. Because I think well, underneath we still have that warrior's mentality where like, I want to do something really hard. But at the same time, I know I can't compete in that shit. Like, I'm, you know, yeah. I think it'd be fun for us to, to create some... Um, some unique competitive environment where I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot of guys out there that are definitely know, have still have the Warriors mentality. I, I mean, I love to train. I still train hard. Um, it's funny because let me go like say five, four or five, five years ago, I would train one of the guys who trains craziest branch Warren. Yeah. I mean, he would actually hurt me because I would, but I keep up with him. He's like, he would do something, put on heavier weights and I would do it. And he's like, what the fuck? Why are you doing this? I go, I said, Branch, if if I was in my twenties, I'd kick your ass. I'd kick your ass. <laughs> get mad at me. Destroy you. <laughs> yeah. So you and I'll get some workouts in, man. I I, I I believe it will be a different, a very very different. But that's what I heard. I said you're going to put me through some pain, which yeah, I give it, it a try. It'll be a different level of pain, and it'll take a different level of focus. And that's why my training is is hard. It's not because it's necessarily physically hard. Of course, it's physically hard, but it's mentally way more challenging than, okay. than yeah. Because I like that. To, I like mental challenging. Rich, thank you very much for your thank time. Thank you. Man. This has been a pleasure. Yeah. Do this. And what's the products that people can look forward to from Gasparri well, coming out? Come uh, to our website, GasparriNutrition.com. We just launched uh, an egg protein, Proven Egg. Uh, it's a pure egg white protein, no artificial sweeteners. We're using stevia, um, natural cocoa. Uh, we ha we're coming up with another flavor, salted caramel. It's all natural flavoring, all natural sweeteners. We have another product called out uh, Proven EAAs, which are, are basically uh, essential amino acids with fermented branch chains. So we're coming up with a lot of products that are going to be new and revolutionary. We talk, You talked earlier about collagen health you know, for joints. We're coming up with a bone broth Correct. collagen. So we're offering that as another product. Um, the legacy products still do very well. The Super Pump Max, Sizon, Anavite. Myofusion, those are all Super the products. Super Pump was always one of my favorite products, man. Still, it still, it still does great. It's still yeah. a product that's great. We're coming up with a new one soon. Uh, look for it. Uh, Super Pump Aggression is going to be coming. So that's going to be, you know, something that you're going to want to use. It's got nootropics. It's going to be a very powerful product. Very, very cool. And I think um, you had uh, Isofuse. Is that Iso Isofusion? Isofusion. We have right now a product that chocolate peanut butter. I used to. Oh, that I used see. to be like my cheat meal when I would live with Kathy. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. I remember I lived Kathy with Kathy. Kathy yeah, she, she was my product. athlete. Yep. Yeah, so she'd bake me these, these, um, you know, two scoops of whey protein with like 40 pounds of ice, and she'd blend it. It was like ice cream. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like my cheat meal when oh, I'm wow. dying. So I, I, I she still it. uses my products. Man, to this I, day. <laughs> I used to represent Gasparri. Don't worry about it. Just, just behind the scenes. A little yeah, yeah. But thank you very much, man. Thank I, you. I appreciate it's your been time. a pleasure. You're a massive, massive inspiration for me, and you will continue to be for a lot of people, man. So thank you. Keep doing what you do. Good. Thanks, brother. All right, boys and girls, that's a wrap. Thank you so much. I appreciate you all being here. I'm truly grateful for you giving me your time. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the chat with Rich Gasperi. Obviously, as you can see, Rich is, uh, is a gentleman. I mean, he's a great guy. He was a great athlete, great motivation because he's got the mindset of a champion, right? When you succeed in one thing, you're going to succeed in other things because you learn how to push yourself. You learn how to not make excuses. You learn how to take ownership for your life. So stop sitting around and wasting time and making excuses as to why you can't and get your ass out there and do it. And I'm here to support you guys every single step of the way. Subs subscribe to the podcast. I can't wait to let you guys hear the next episode coming at you, which is going to blow you away. Muscleintelligence.com coming at you and head over to iTunes right now. Subscribe, leave us a review. 
Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Ben Bukowski, out. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.